Some of them have been traveling for as much as three days just to see if the rumors are true. And when you look out into the crowd, you'll see a father who just wants his child to stop suffering from seizures. And you look out into the crowd and you see a family member near death and is suffering from extreme pain, surrounded by their family, hoping and praying to God that they would be healed. In the crowd are demon-possessed. In the crowd are men and women who have suffered in poverty for years due to paralysis, leaving them unable to work and having to beg for food to survive. And in the crowd there are people who have traveled from far and wide, from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, from regions beyond the Jordan, and it's cost them days of wages. They've left jobs and family behind, and all they want to see is, are these rumors true? Are these rumors true? Who is this Jesus? Is he a spiritual teacher? Is he a healer? Is he from God? Is he a prophet? Is he some, just some radical here to overthrow Rome? Who is Jesus? See, Jesus has a reputation. He's been going about Galilee in the north teaching synagogues and he's been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. That's Matthew 4.23. So you better believe that moms and dads are grabbing their sick kids. Family members are taking their lame and incurably diseased. You better believe that those who have been suffering in extreme pain for decades are definitely showing up People are bringing these demon-possessed and those suffering from seizures and the paralyzed. And that's Matthew 4.24 when it says, and he healed them. So who wouldn't follow that guy? Some people are just naturally following him. They're chasing after him. They want to know more about this miracle man and who is he and what is he about. And Jesus sees these crowds, these crowds of the curious, the desperate, the doubtful, those who have lost hope. He sees those looking for answers and he goes onto this mountainside and he sits down and he begins to teach. Now it is, <laughs> it is hard for people like you and me to understand anything sensational enough to drive crowds of people to travel on foot, that's right, by foot, as far as 60 miles or more. That is the distance from Mission Trails Church to San Clemente. <laughs> That is the length of more than two marathons. 60 miles is the equivalent of 1,056 football fields. So for the average person, that's about 20 hours of just walking, not including sleeping, resting, eating, etc. So it could be something around three days of travel. We just hit Netflix and we stream. We don't have to travel to Sensation. Sensation comes to us. But these people are willing to take risks not just traveling risks, but also in terms of cost and money. And yet that's how eager and desperate and willing they are to find answers to their problems, hope for their hopelessness. And now Jesus has their attention. But what he speaks about is not at all what they are expecting. So there from the mount, suddenly Jesus begins to preach a message about his kingdom and what it means to be his disciples. Now, if you've been tracking with us for the past few weeks, then you've journeyed with us as Kyla has very skillfully and very carefully been walking us through the Sermon on the Mount. And this has been an incredible season here at Mission Trails Church. I can speak for our growth group and probably in your growth groups as well. It's led to some really amazing conversations. It's been really rewarding. 
rewarding. And there's so much more that's coming in this series in Matthew that we're calling the King and His Kingdom. If you're new here today, there's a Bible in front of you in that pew area. If you don't have a Bible or if you need a new one, you are welcome to keep that. We're going to be opening up our Bibles today in Matthew 7, which is page 971 in that Bible in front of you. And we're going to be starting in verse 13, Matthew 7, 13. And it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Try saying that five times fast. (laughs) Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains came, the streams rose, and the winds blew, it beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Then when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. All right, before we dive too deep into our message today, I need a volunteer. <laughs> just, just joking. I know this one. Ah, oh, we got one brave soul. There's one in it. So far, there's only one in every service. Um, I just wanted to see if you guys would squirm. I knew you guys were instantly praying, please don't pick me. Why did I invite a friend today? So weird. Um, actually, I've asked Kevin to come and be my assistant today. So Kevin's going to come on up. Say, everyone say, hi, Kevin. Hi. All right. Thank you very much. Kevin is uh, one of our worship leaders here at Mission Trails. He's an elder at our church, actually, and he's the director of our of Challenge College Ministry. So, Kevin, what I want you to do is you're going to play with Play-Doh for us for two minutes. You can build anything you want. Build one thing um, and, uh, and go ahead and begin whenever you're ready. And while Kevin's doing that, we're all going to talk about Play-Doh for a second, okay? So (laughs) we connect with Play-Doh because it allows our imagination to go places we don't normally go. My kids just love this stuff. It's like Legos or any other toy that allows them to imagine and build. And all you have to do is dream. I mean, you're limited only by your creativity and your imagination. And this appeals to us because we all, by default, love a world that we can form more than a world that forms us. Meaning, the thing that makes us feel the safest in the world is control. An environment where I am in control means an environment that I can create. I define it. It doesn't define me. The world that makes me feel best is a world that I can shape, form, and change to meet my wants, my desires, my needs. And that is the appeal of Plato, besides being just childish, good old-fashioned, squishy fun. Um, 
it, it exercises this craving inside of all of us to build our dreams because creating the reality I want is way more exciting and appealing than living in the reality I actually have. And so the appeal of imagination, of wishful thinking, of blissful ignorance, of seeing reality the way you want instead of the way it actually is, of trying to create and control reality to meet your expectations instead of facing reality and making changes that it feels safe. <laughs> There's the reality we want, the reality we dream of, the reality we desire, and then there's the reality that actually is. It's why we love Hallmark and Disney and Pixar. We love the stories where everything works out and we find ourselves over time beginning to believe that these narratives run parallel to reality. That our happy ending is just around the corner. Just like, just like in the movies, just past that next difficult circumstance. Just be on that unfair condition that our lives are currently in. We are all secretly paupers just waiting to be crowned kings. We are all lonely romantics waiting for some magically perfect person to come and sweep us off our feet and make everything better. We are one house renovation away from the life we've always wanted. And that... And that is something that Jesus is driving at in the scripture today, that there is a reality we choose to believe, and then there's the reality we actually live in. And unlike the reality we would choose, the reality we live in is massively limited, it's broken, and it lacks the safety and security we crave in spite of all of our efforts to control it, which is why understanding Jesus is so critically important. All right, let's see, Kev, what you got, buddy? That was fast, I know. That is... It's a little ugly dog. Hey, nice job. Give it up for Kevin. Nice job. You can just leave that out. Just leave it right there. We're going to look at it. <laughs> Not judging you, just enjoying your artistic endeavor. <laughs> um, so it's critically important. Uh, that we understand what Jesus is saying because we want a world that we can form, a world we can change to meet our needs now, our cravings today, our goals and future plans faster. And we get so wrapped up in all the things we want our life to mean and all the things we build our hopes on, all the different ways that we give ourselves significant and meaning that we don't just look at Jesus in the eyes and ask, what am I really supposed to be doing here? What am I really supposed to be doing, Jesus? So our text today beckons us to look at reality in hard-hitting and contentious ways, and although it is simple and straightforward to read and to, under, to begin to understand, its implications and its applications are complex. It's one of those moments in the Bible where simple truth meets the complexity of our brokenness as human people. And so as we look at Matthew 7, 13 through 29, we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying? What is his point? And here's what Jesus is saying. For the past two chapters of Matthew, Jesus has been telling us what it means and what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like to live under the authority of God? And in the past weeks, we've examined the Beatitudes. And Jesus has called us salt and light as followers to live our faith out loud, that our righteousness is inadequate and that we need him. He has raised the bar on character by addressing our hearts. And that, and that seeing others as less than ourselves or as fools comparatively is a heart condition that doesn't fly in the kingdom of heaven. That even looking at someone with lustful intent is committing adultery in our heart. He has spoken to divorce, to oaths, revenge, love for enemies. He has addressed generosity from within the heart, that it should not be for show, but unto the Lord and out of generous 
genuine love. He's addressed prayer, fasting. He's instructed us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness above earthly treasure, security, and gain, and told us to trust him. He's talked about seeing the speck in others' eyes while failing to address the log of sin uh, within ourselves. And he's told us that if we seek him and find him, if we knock, the door will be opened. He has shown us all this and more than I honestly knew how to summarize Um, Again, I think Kyle has done a fantastic job of walking us through these texts. And now Jesus is concluding. Jesus is concluding this message on the mount by saying, choose. Choose a side. Which is leaving the crowds amazed at his teaching because it had authority, but it was different than the teachers of their society had been teaching them. And so they have this question, what do we do now? How are we supposed to respond to that? And more importantly, how will you respond? This choice isn't simply presented to a bunch of crowds gathered in ancient history, but it's presented to us and to our community and to our society, our world. What will you do with Jesus? So let's unpack the text. (laughs) Let's unpack it. We're going to talk about a narrow road and a wide road today. First of all, does anyone here like to be thought of as narrow? Okay, like two people are like, maybe. <laughs> maybe our waistlines, but not intellectually. <laughs> when you go out in public, there's none of you, I'm guessing, who is like hoping that someone just catches a whiff of your narrowness. It would be really weird and, and sad, actually. It wouldn't be a compliment if at my funeral someday someone said, I always just remember how narrow Dominic was. Oh, I miss that guy. Like, not going to happen. <laughs> That would be really sad. But there are problems, though. There's a problem here. There's a problem with the labels that we put on the idea of being narrow. So to say that no one should be narrow is the same as saying that no one should get to be right. No person should get to tell other people what to believe. And that mentality can create a culture where people are less incentivized to seek out what is ultimately true or right. Instead, we create a societal norm of being people who instead of you know, helpfully and lovingly proclaiming truth, we become far more worried about not offending other people. And little by little, something happens in that society where any shared sentiment of there being an absolute truth begins to fade. And what begins to grow is this idea of no ultimate truth conviction. Everyone is supposed to find their truth, which is a way of saying that truth doesn't actually exist. Life is what you make it. A lack of ultimate truth becomes the ultimate truth. Does that make sense? This issue is what makes our scripture so extremely controversial today. It's the narrowness, people. So let's talk about the narrow road. Why are the first gate and road narrow? Well, first of all, it provides only one way to life and only one way out of destruction. Only one way to life and one way out of destruction. So Jesus presents this incredibly binary choice. Red pill, blue pill, in or out kind of scenario. A road that leads to destruction and a road that leads to life. And that's super controversial. Now it's controversial today for different reasons than it would have been in Israel back then. See, in our day and age, a statement that says there is only one way to life and all other ways on a different road are heading towards destruction super offends people. And it's understandable because what you're telling them is that they cannot be whoever they want. 
that life cannot be Plato, that you cannot dream and shape it to be what you want it to be. What you are telling people is that no matter how much makeup you put on this world, no matter how much confidence you have in the human spirit to get better or to improve, we cannot perfect ourselves or cure our lostness. The reality of our condition and situation is ugly and it's heading towards destruction and there's only one hope for all humanity and that is God's son sent to save and redeem the world from its destruction and that's Jesus Christ. That's offensive. It doesn't leave room for anyone else's view. It's binary. Now in the day and age when Jesus presented this, it was offensive for different reasons. The problem for them wasn't the narrowness. of, or even the idea of there being only one way to salvation. As, as the people of Israel, they were the ones who represented a society that was supposed to put their ultimate hope in God alone. The t- thus the temple sacrifices and everything else. So they didn't have a problem with the narrowness. What they did have a problem with is two things. Two things. One is Jesus saying that to access the path to life, you have to enter through him, the narrow gate. Now this was offensive because no one uh, but God can forgive sin. No one but God can forgive sin. And so for him to say that he is the path to life means that he is equating himself to God. And this would have been considered blasphemy. It's a massive claim. And the second problem they have with what he's saying is that by saying that they must enter through him, not through the religious traditions and practices that they were trained to and accustomed to, meant that Jesus was saying that the way in which you could come to God was changing. This also would have been offensive to many, especially to those who had built their entire life around this traditional spiritual system that had been in place, like Pharisees, for example. So he is putting himself on par with God and simultaneously changing the way that people are reconciled to God by having them go through him. And all of that is wrapped up in the simple idea that the narrow gate is Jesus. The narrow gate is Jesus. It's the perfect Sunday school answer, Jesus. If you look at John with me, you'll see Jesus talk more pointedly about this. John 10, 7 through 10 says, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the gate that leads to the road that leads to life. No one can walk the road that leads to life without him. And again, there are present-day and old world's offenses to that statement. In the day Jesus was speaking, this would have mean that there was no amount of righteousness that could get you to heaven. And this is offensive because if you were a Pharisee or another religious sect who counted themselves some of the holiest in society's religious people, this just pulled the rug right out. And yet we just read in Matthew 5.20, a couple weeks ago, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has just said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are more righteous than the most religious dudes in the nation you are not righteous enough which is another way of saying we need Jesus we need Jesus apart from him without passing through him the gate we don't enter the narrow road that leads to life we can't do it and that's a big statement it means depending on Christ for life 
We must allow ourselves to depend on Jesus Christ, to trust and to follow him so that he can lead us to eternal hope and salvation. The gate and the road are also narrow because the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of righteousness. It's a kingdom of righteousness. What does that word mean? It's a word that means something is without sin. It's righteous. It's uncorrupted. It's in right standing. And Jesus, in this sermon on the mount, just went through a whole myriad of these character statements that define righteous behavior and what it should look like. And he's describing what it means for us to be a disciple of God and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that is a standard that does not leave any room for sin. It doesn't leave any room for anything less than righteousness, which again reveals our ultimate need for Christ and his righteousness in order to access the road that leads to life. And what's interesting about passing through the narrow gate and then walking the road that follows is that it's still a narrow road. Like once you've walked through and accepted Christ and you're walking the narrow road, it's still a narrow road. What I'm saying is that the road past the gate is one of faith and followership. Biblical belief and repentant obedience. Again, we're describing why this road and gate are narrow. The road past the gate is one of faith and followership, biblical belief and repentant obedience. Because passing through the gate that leads to life starts with Jesus. And when we do that, when we put our faith in Christ, what we're saying is, yes, I believe that you, Jesus, are the way to life, that, that what you are saying is true, and what you command of my life is not only right, but it's ultimately good. Then once I've decided to put my faith in Christ, then we begin to align our lives and beliefs with his word, with biblical truth. We begin to live in this cycle of repentant obedience because we are turning our life over to him. And that's part of living on this narrow road. It's this process of leaving our Plato behind, of growing out of our spiritually uninformed view of the world and beginning to allow God's word to help us see the world for what it actually is as opposed to what we wanted it to be. And so when we slip back into wrong beliefs, which does happen, when we lose our sense of perspective, when our behaviors that were part of our wrong understanding of reality of sin and our life apart from God slip back in, what we do is we come back to God with it, we repent, we lay it at his feet apologetically, and then through his help and his power at work within us, through the Holy Spirit, we go back out and in his power at work in our lives, try to be the person he saved us from sin to become. That's life on the narrow road. So the question is then, if the narrow road leads to life, why isn't everyone like jumping up and down and signing up for Club Jesus? <laughs> why? Well, when you look at the uh, text in verse 28, it says, people were amazed. It doesn't tell us what happened after they were amazed, but it does tell us why they were amazed. And it says that they were amazed because he sounded, first of all, like he knew what he was talking about. And second of all, what he said was different than what they had been raised hearing. And this happens to us as well. Most people will read the Beatitudes and other parts of Jesus' teaching and be amazed. Uh, they'll think to themselves, man, that guy's a great teacher. What a great moral philosopher. Most people agree with the virtues he extols in the same way they agree with Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., but they do not enter the gate. And so why do we struggle to trust Christ and actually respond to what he says as opposed to just thinking that he's a great teacher? So let's talk for a moment about the appeals of the broad gate and road. The appeals of the broad gate and road. And first of all, it's wide. <laughs> it has room for every belief system except the gospel of Christ. In other words, it's less uncomfortable because it's not narrow. 
And that isn't to say that all unbiblical belief is easy to follow or that there aren't other religious beliefs that don't also make exclusivity claims. But what it does say is that it's narrow. It's the narrow thought of Jesus Christ being the only way to life and that any path that isn't surrendered and following him leads to destruction that freaks people out. See, the wide road seems much more accommodating. It's got more room, which means it's popular. It's the road traveled by the majority. If you don't want Jesus telling you what your life should be and what it's actually supposed to look like, you are in great company. (laughs) The wide road is the popular one. One commentary I read uh, said that the appeal of the broad road is that it doesn't have any restrictions and you will always have company. (laughs) And yet it is life on the broad road that is responsible for all the hurt and the pain, the destruction, and the chaos in the world, our refusal to be who God made us to be, to trust him enough to, in faith and biblical belief, follow him and repent of our destructive patterns, is exactly why the world is so full of the many things that we hate, so many of the pains that we've experienced that we can't unfeel, so many of the wrongs that have happened to us and the people we care about. And, you know, we rarely hold ourselves accountable for that. It's always society's fault or God's fault. But we struggle to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, we are all broken. Others have wronged me, but I have also wronged others. I am part of the brokenness and what is wrong with the world. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. We, meaning the people who have wronged and hurt me. We, meaning all the victims of evil in the world who have ever been wronged. And we, The perpetrators of that evil in the world need Jesus. See, it's our lack of narrowness. It's our lack of narrowness that is the culprit for our demise because the road from destruction to life is found only in Christ. So we must take heed. We must hear Jesus' warning. We must see the reality we live in because there are dangers And we must acknowledge those dangers on the broad road if we're going to succeed. So some of the dangers of the broad road and and gate are, first of all, everyone is born into it. Some of the dangers are that everyone is born into it. By the way, this is Kyle's point. And so even though he's in Oklahoma uh, doing a wedding, uh, it's like he's still with us today in spirit. It's like a Christmas miracle. (laughs) Right there. Okay. So here's the, here's the danger of being born on the broad road, okay? Being, in, this is it. Being born into a broken system makes it much harder to tell that it's broken. If you were born into a dark world with no light, you wouldn't think of it as a dark world. It would just be the world. It wouldn't be a problem because it would be all that you knew, which is why I think it's so powerful what it says in Matthew 4, 15 through 17, when it says, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And get this, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
So we're born on this broad road, and it makes it harder sometimes for us to respond to Jesus. See, he's coming as the light to show us that the world needs light, that we, you, me, everybody else, we're all broken. And then he says, but don't worry, I am your way to life. I am the healing that the world needs. I am the light that this darkness has needed. Follow me, choose me, leave the broad road. This is why, as Christians also, it's so important for us to be the type of people who are sharing and living out the gospel in the world in the way that we live. We've got to get the word out because people living in darkness need to see the power and beauty that can be had when living in the light of Christ. It's not about winning arguments, but about helping people see the love of God and the rescue from brokenness that can be had in Jesus Christ. It's about helping people recognize and see that there is life at the end of a narrow road. So other uh, dangers of the broad gate and road are that it ends in destruction. Jesus said that. Those are his words. You can travel the road however you want, but every way that you go outside of Christ ends the same. If you want rescue, come to me, Christ says. Other dangers of the broad road. It lacks the satisfaction and the rest and the fulfillment of living under God's grace. It lacks the satisfaction, rest, and fulfillment of living under God's grace. Have you, ever, have you ever had the satisfaction of living under God's grace? Some of you guys have been Christians for a really long time but still struggle with this, and I'm saying that because I, I know I do sometimes, <laughs> or even oftentimes. What's so beautiful about Jesus, what makes the gospel such good news, is that it tells us that we are more broken, more lost and hopeless than we ever dared to believe about ourselves, but we are also more loved than we ever dared to hope by God. I'm borrowing words from Tim Keller there. But I love how he says that. So your sin, my sin, our broad road hurts, our habits, our hang-ups, our evil, but God's grace in the death of Jesus Christ has rescued you from them all. Meaning, you can rest. You don't have to earn his love or salvation. You can rest. I even said that too aggressively. You can rest. (laughs) That should help us feel fulfilled and satisfied and help us end our endless striving to earn God's love and instead simply enjoy it. To live out of its power as we go out into the world. You guys see the difference? Lastly, a glaring danger on the the wide road is that God's salvation and life-giving sanctification are not on that road. God's salvation and life-giving sanctification are not on that road. Those are two big S words. We're going to define them. But what we're saying is that, in other words, through the wide gate and on the wide road, there is no hope. God's salvation through Jesus Christ is the rescue from the destruction of the wide road. So what do I mean by salvation? I mean that we deserved judgment for our evil, but instead of getting what we deserved, Christ came on our behalf, died innocently on the cross, a sinner's death, took the punishment for sin and evil on our behalf, and because of that sacrifice, our sin is forgiven. And now we have the freedom, and this is the part where it gets really, really exciting, now we have the freedom to be in union with God. Through Christ, we are reunited to the God that sin had separated us from from and can enjoy the fruits and benefits of that love relationship. And what's really great goes more, there's more. 
is that God doesn't just remove the punishment for your sins. He then sends his spirit inside of you and it starts to work on your heart and mind. He starts to shape you into his image and begins to draw you out of your old wide road thinking and wide road living. And he begins to fill your Plato dreaming mind with his truth. And after you walk the narrow gate, what is Jesus, you begin this journey of faith and followership that will ultimately change you. That is the meaning of the word sanctification. It means to be made holy, to be changed to the thing that you were meant to be but could only become through Christ. So according to Baker's Evangelical Dictionary, a generic definition of sanctification, which I actually just, I love this. It just says sanctification is the state of proper functioning. <laughs> what it means is that after we enter the narrow gate, God begins to work in our lives and within our hearts and our minds to rescue us from our brokenness and leads us to a state of proper functioning. In other words, he brings us back in line with reality and with truth. It's so great. So these two roads are the image Christ uses to call us to follow him, to choose him, and not the road that leads to destruction. But there are some hazards, okay? And I want to be your tour guide today. There are some hazards. There are people and powers in the world that will try to lead you astray and keep you from walking the narrow road. So let's talk about it. Hazards on the narrow road. First of all, false prophets are a hazard on the narrow road. And in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Whew. So what is a prophet? Prophet is any person, at least one of the, the dictionary references, uh, the, the theological dictionary's references, as any person directed by the inspiration of God to proclaim his will. Any person directed by the inspiration of God to proclaim his will. So what is a false prophet logically then? It's someone who is not directed or inspired by God, someone not proclaiming God's will and yet claiming that they are. So the truth is that a false prophet, if any of you guys have sat under teaching that a lot of times false prophets, they can be very convincing and extremely appealing because they tell us things that we want to hear and they play off of our hopes and our fears and our insecurities. But check this out. I love this passage. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. It says, for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry." So there are plenty of experts in the world who will tell you exactly what you want to hear. They are part of the broad road system. And they will say things that are compelling, powerful, and sound like wisdom. But the Bible says that you will know them by their fruit. Matthew 7, 18 through 20, it says, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. And what this means is you can view their teaching, their actions, you can look at their life against God's word, and you can see if it lines up. 
See, there are even spiritual leaders out there who have walked off the narrow road and are not making Christ the main thing anymore. And these false teachers point people to a lot of things, even really good things. But if they aren't helping you connect with Christ, if they aren't pointing you to the narrow gate, are they really leading you from destruction? They are not. Christ must be the main thing. But it's not just leaders who are at risk. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, just as a recap says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And what this passage is talking about is false discipleship. False discipleship. And there's two major ways that false discipleship can, can happen, and I want to kind of show you that. And so other hazards on the narrow road include idolatry of religion over relationship, self-righteousness, idolatry of religion over relationship. Some people mistake being busy for God as being surrendered to God, and it is a form of self-righteousness, and it plays out in two ways. Uh, one way is to not trust in salvation through Christ completely. Even though you believe that Christ died for your sins, what you, don't, what you struggle with, what you don't really believe, is that God's grace covers you or that God loves you. This is an emotion that's often tied to fear, guilt, and shame. And so you do a whole lot of spiritual stuff to put God into your debt. This is self-righteousness because what are you doing? You are not trusting God for your salvation. You are still trying to earn it yourself. It's a hamster wheel trying to prove to God that you are worthy of his forgiveness when he's already handed it to you. And the second way that idolatry of religion over relationships, self-righteousness can happen is by being a hyper-religious person instead of a Christ follower, Okay. This is, this is one of those really deceptive and dangerous uh, possibilities. It's, it's possible to choose a religious belief, to become super involved, and then to think that you have accomplished something. And what I mean is you believe that your religious works and your devotion to that religion are what saves you, which is still an idea rooted in who? Not Christ, you. It's a belief that your devotion, your religious participation, and your sacrifice will save you. And it will not. And what Christ is saying is, I will save you. You cannot be righteous enough or religious enough to save yourself and join the kingdom of heaven. So if we do that, if we trust Christ, then we will live surrendered to God in the grace afforded us through Jesus Christ. Being able to live free from the guilt and shame that once held us and now being able to live life free and redeemed on the narrow road that leads to life through Christ. In John 15, 4 through 5, I love this passage. It says, remain in me, this is Christ, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in me, the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what that means is that all of our good works, all of our religious activity, the fruit of our life, if it is not rooted in Christ, it, then it is not empowered, and it is not born out of His work in us. In other words, doing religious stuff without abiding in Christ misses the gospel. 
So the other end of the spectrum, so that's self-righteousness. The other end of that spectrum is those who are spiritually careless. It's another hazard on the road. Spiritually careless. So again, we're talking Matthew 7. In verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there are those who take the grace of God to places where their faith in God begins to appear kind of insincere. Now, just to be clear, we all struggle with various sins. And becoming a follower of Christ doesn't magically mean that one day you wake up and you just stop struggling with broad road thinking or broad road sin issues. It's not how it works. But as the book of James helps us understand, faith without works is dead, meaning that we cannot claim to believe in Christ Believe that he has rescued us from the destruction of the wide road and then go on living and walking on the wide road without any regard to the narrow road that he rescued us to walk on so that we could have life. Does that make sense? If sin was something that Christ died to rescue you from and yet you don't think that your sin is a problem, then maybe you don't understand the gospel or you're simply being spiritually careless. In either case, I would want us to hear the warning of Titus 1.16 where it says they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. This is not about perfection, but it's about what your life is aiming at. Now, some of you, if you're just realizing you've been living on the broad road or that you've been caught up listening and following the leadership of false prophets or teachers who have been leading you away from Christ or you've been either a self-righteous person or a spiritually careless person, Christ is calling you to himself and he is offering you a warning because he loves you. I cannot stress that enough. That is the heart behind all of this. Christ loves you. And at the end of chapter 7, Christ talks about building your house or your life on the sand. It says that a house built on anything other than Christ is a house or life that will not stand. So all of these hazards to the narrow road point to the final hazard, which is a foundation that cannot stand. A foundation that cannot stand. I have met some incredible people. I mean, amazing entrepreneurs. I was in business banking back in the day. I have met people way smarter than myself and way more talented than myself. And they're amazing people to know. The problem is, you may live a full and fulfilling life. You may be extremely accomplished, the kind of person that everybody wants to read your books, do what you're doing, know what you're about, and emulate you. But if your life isn't on the foundation and security of Christ, no amount of success can save you. No matter how beautiful or how powerful the house you've built, in the end, great will be its fall. There's only one gate. There's only one gate and road that leads to life, and you can't build it yourself or earn it. It is only through Christ that you can be saved from the destruction of the broad road. So if your house, your life, your purpose, your life's meaning and significance are, are not built on Christ, great will be their fall. There isn't any way but him that leads to life. And remember John 15 when it says, apart from me you can do nothing. We need Christ. we got to get to the point where we can look in the mirror and say, I need Christ. I'd like to end this message on hope. My favorite spot, my favorite thought, hope. Here are five things that should excite you, empower you, and encourage you to make Christ your main thing. To choose the narrow gate and to follow Christ along the narrow road that leads to life. All right, hope on the narrow road. Five things. First of all, salvation. 
If that was my only point, that would be enough. An ultimate rescue. That is what salvation is. An ultimate rescue from the reality of human and earthly brokenness. You know, like the people who gathered in Matthew 4 from all over Israel to be healed from their pain, from their diseases, from their brokenness, we too long for healing. We long for rescue. Through the narrow gate is the road that leads to life and a path that leads towards heaven where we will be untethered from the brokenness of our present lives. The earth's present problems and the destructive nature of all that goes on in this broad world, this broad road world that defines our lives today. Our hope is the hope of salvation that we will be rescued from the brokenness that we, be, that we were born into and that has defined our reality all this time. So salvation... Another hope on the narrow road is fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. It means trusting and following Christ. It means that actually being in relationship with the living God of the universe and the one who created you. Abiding in Christ, as it says in John 15, is a relational statement. It's not just, I'm saved, I show up on Sundays, and I high-five God on the way out. It means that in my life, God is a relationship that I am pursuing and investing in. And that is a gift given to you by Christ. It's not a, a to-do list. It's not a chore. A, the gift given to you through Christ is salvation and fellowship with God. The next hope on the narrow road is bearing good fruit. See, when you, in, when you abide in Christ, as John 15 says, you are empowered to live the life the way, you are empowered to live life the way that God designed, uh, and your life will start to bear fruit. It's that sanctification process that we talked about where you are being returned to your proper function to become his desired will. And listen, I know people get discouraged all the time. You know, they, they, they struggle with stuff in their lives and they think, man, am I, even, am I even saved? I've had those moments. And I don't just mean like casually in a passive way. I've had those moments in very hard-hitting, serious ways. The process of sanctification, I just want to say this, can be slow, hard, and even tedious. It can be really tedious. It's like spiritual growing pains. I have a four-year-old. He has growing pains all the time. He wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's screaming, and you think he must have fallen off the roof or something. And he's like, my leg, it hurts. And there's nothing I can do. Or if there is, you should come see me after the service. <laughs> but they're, they're growing pains. He has to go through them. It's part of growing. <laughs> and leaving our old, broad road, Plato way of living and thinking behind is hard sometimes. But as we surrender to God's will for our lives, as we repentantly obey Him, He changes us from the inside out and our lives begin to bear fruit. And it's a beautiful thing. I'm telling you, there are things that have happened in my life where I'm like, I can't believe I'm the one doing this. <laughs> it's God. It's not me. It's because of the sanctifying work of God in my life that I can be up here in front of you today. It's not my brilliance. It's not my hard work and effort. It's not uh, my sophistication because I am not sophisticated. It is Christ at work in me. And you know what? Um, when we stand in Christ and we stand on the road that leads to uh, life... It's a road that cannot be shaken or tarnished or taken from us because our hope, our future, rests in him. And we stand secured in the one who died for us, rose, and gives us life. See, there is nothing that can defeat Christ. The world tried once, and even in his death, 
there was victory. He died victorious. He was murdered and he was victorious. And we stand on that victory and it is immovable and it will not be shaken or taken away, which tells us that we have an imperishable future built on the unshakable foundation of Christ. An imperishable future built on the unshakable foundation of Christ. We want to be houses built on the rock that will not fall but will stand. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the last hope of the, of the narrow road. It's hope. <laughs> hope that overshadows our present circumstances. Hope that overshadows our present circumstances. Let that sink in. When you give your life to Christ, you know that no matter what happens here on earth, no matter what terrible circumstances may come, you are on the road that leads to life. Everlasting life. Eternal life. And not a life in darkness, but a life that will be lived in the beauty and presence of God and in the righteous kingdom of heaven where all this misery and evil and suffering will be no more. That's our hope that overshadows our present circumstances. Our eternal hope in Christ will we trade in these mortal bodies for immortal ones and bask in the light of all that is good and wonderful in the joy and the love and the beauty of God's uncorrupted kingdom where Christ has gone to prepare a place for you. God's spirit is with you now. This is, there's two things I want us to think about in closing. God's Spirit is with you now if you're a follower of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. So what that means is that you can enjoy and experience God's love and presence and fellowship right now. That's Christ's gift to you from the cross. In this mortal life, you get to enjoy abiding in Christ, a relationship with God. But there is also a place waiting for those who have chosen Christ in the kingdom of heaven that we can look forward to, and that should give you hope. Hope beyond your present circumstances. So choose the broad road or choose Christ. This is God's word.